I don't know about you, this may be a generational thing, but I rarely ever carry cash with me anymore. Rarely ever, okay? Which means that everything I buy, I buy on a card most of the time. And the good thing about that is that at the end of the year, I get this report from my bank that tells me everything I spent my money on that year. So the bad thing about that is that at the end of the year, I get this report from my bank that tells me everything I spent my money on that year. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have looked at that report and you're just like, what? I spent how much on what? Okay, Uh, I'm convinced that Chick-fil-A needs to have a gentry parking spot. We have spent just so much. We've invested so much in Chick-fil-A, okay? And then so many other things. I just like can't believe we spent so much money there. Have you ever looked at that bank statement and asked yourself, why do I spend so much on what I spend it on? All right, if you're like me, maybe you've done that before. And then you start thinking, has it always been this way? And I think the answer to that question is yes and no. No, and that there are some really unique factors that you and I face every day that are influencing how we see our money. But yes, in that I think those unique modern factors are connected to something really ancient, okay? Really deep and really powerful. And so I wanna talk about that a little bit today. What I want to do first is I want to talk with you about how the world inclines us or helps us to see our money. And then I want to talk to you about how the Word of God does that. And you'll probably, you're going to see a difference. Let me show you this picture right here. This this guy on the screen that you're going to see in just a second, this is my great-grandpa. I think we're going to throw up that picture. There we go. It's my great-grandpa. I went to Nocona, Texas a few weeks ago to visit my grandpa. He lives there in Nocona, Texas, the place where he grew up. There's a couple hundred people in Nocona, Texas. Uh, If you've heard of Nocona cowboy boots or Nocona baseball gloves, they're made in Nocona, Texas. All right. So we went to visit my grandpa there and we went to the only restaurant in town, which is the Dairy Queen. And it's kind of a fancy Dairy Queen, if there is such a thing. And on the walls of the Dairy Queen in Nocona, Texas are these old black and white photos from the history of Nocona And we walk into Dairy Queen and my mom points at the wall and she says, that's your great-grandpa right there. And so my great-grandpa, Stouder was his last name. He was on my grandmother's side. He was the first mailman in Nocona, Texas. And so that's him with the bags of mail that he used to deliver on horseback or on a horse-drawn carriage all over the hills of Nocona, Texas. This was right before the Great Depression is when this is, okay? And so I just kind of want to give you that picture to acknowledge this is a time I have never known. Of course, you you know that, and most of you in this room didn't know this time period of before the Great Depression and living into the Great Depression, but it was a time in which the values of the world were thrift and contentment. You just got by with what you had, okay? You delivered the mail on horseback back then. It was a different time. So what happens after this? Well, you'll know from American history that right after this, entering the Great Depression, we entered a war, World War II. And what happens in America during World War II is really unique, okay? Two or three, sorry, really important things happen. The first is that our production capacity grows dramatically as a nation, that all of these factories come online to produce things for the war effort. So our production capacity is magnified and multiplied incredibly. 
At the same time, while most of the men are off at war, women, many of them for the first time, enter the workforce. And so they're now bringing home an income as well. So you've got the rise in production, you've got families with two incomes, and you have this all taking place in a nation where the battle is not fought. Most of the battles are fought overseas. So Europe is devastated, Europe is in pieces, and they're gonna face reconstruction after the war, but America is in one piece. Okay, so we don't have to rebuild, we have massive production capacity, and we have families with two incomes. Okay. So it's the first time in history, in many ways, where human production grows beyond human consumption. And so out of this environment, businesses, these factories that have come online, these people who are employing all these families, okay, they face a challenge and that people aren't consuming as much as we have the ability to produce. And so a whole new industry emerges that did not exist prior to World War II. You know what we call that industry? Marketing, marketing. Before World War II, marketing was primarily about, primarily about events, like going to the circus or something. After World War II, marketing is primarily about products and buying products. And specifically, as historians look back at this, they call the kind of marketing that emerges after World War II and really stretches into today, inadequacy marketing. Have you ever heard this before? Inadequacy marketing. Basically, there's two steps. One, you create a crisis. And two, you present your product as the solution to that crisis. Okay. All right, so let me give you an example of this. This was a World War II, uh, or not a World War II, <laughs> after World War II. This was a Super Bowl advertisement a couple of years ago. All right, at the Super Bowl coming up. Maybe those are similar, I don't know. Uh, a few years ago, the Super Bowl, during the Super Bowl, there was a 30-second ad of The Simpsons. Anybody remember The Simpsons cartoon? I don't know about you, when I was growing up, child of the 80s, The Simpsons was the one thing we were not allowed to watch. Anybody else? Okay. All right, okay, so I didn't watch The Simpsons, but apparently there's this rich tycoon in the Simpsons cartoon world, and then in the 30-second Super Bowl ad, he loses everything. His business goes under, loses all his money, he loses his family, he has lost everything in the short 30-second cartoon. And so he's walking through the world and all of his things are just falling away and his face just turns into this scowl, this frown, and he walks up to somebody and that somebody sees him and they hand him a Coca-Cola, and he opens the Coca-Cola, takes a drink, and starts smiling. And this angelic music begins to play in the background. And the advertisement in bubble letters comes up. It says, Coca-Cola, open happiness. Open happiness. Okay, he's having a moment like Job in the Bible. And Coca-Cola would make it all better. Okay, do you see how foolish that is? Okay, but this is inadequacy marketing. You're lacking something. What are you lacking? A Coke, right? And now you're going to be thinking about Coke the rest of the morning. Okay, okay, you're lacking something. All right, Jonas Sachs said this, listen to this. He says this, advertising has shaped our culture and identities more than any other cultural force in the last century. Hearing thousands of stories a day about how incomplete we are has convinced many of us to see ourselves as consumers first and citizens second. And you might change that word citizens to what? Christians, believers. Consumers first, believers second. It's weakened our public institutions. It's driven us to unsustainable consumption. Okay. We see that and we're like, fortunately, not us. Right? And all that marketing doesn't work 
on you and me, does it? Remember when COVID-19 started and simultaneously you and I, at the same time, all had one impulse to go to Kroger and buy toilet paper. Remember this? It was like this global health pandemic has happened. This global crisis is breaking out around the world and we're like, y'all, we need to get toilet paper fast. Do you remember this? Okay, we hoarded toilet paper. Some of you are still using your COVID-19 toilet paper. It was so bad, the US Department of Justice and the President of the United States issued a memo about hoarding that said, quote, we will aggressively pursue bad actors who amass critical supplies beyond what they could use. They started a hoarding task force and opened a hoarding hotline where conveniently you can report your neighbor from the comfort of your own home, I said. All right, we say all that inadequacy marketing, all that scarcity that the world says you don't have as much as you need, you need more, doesn't get to us. And then something happens and we run to Kroger to get toilet paper because we're not going to have enough. And James 5, James has this just, I mean, penetrating insight. He says, you know you're rich if you hoard. You know you're rich if the stuff you have feels like it's not enough. And that those who are poor are generally content. You know you're rich if you're hoard. When we stop to think about it, we see that this story of inadequacy isn't true. Like, we know it's not true. The inadequacy tells us that more stuff will make me more happy. And you and I all know that is not true, that more stuff does not make us more happy. In fact, over the last few weeks, I've talked some about how depression rates and deaths by despair is what they call those deaths, are skyrocketing in our time. And what's fascinating is if you compare that to our spending, they track with one another. That we are spending more money than we have ever spent in the history of the world, and we are more depressed than we have ever been. More depressed than we've ever been. Okay. So look at those two things side by side. You and I know the story the world is telling us about our money is not true. That our money is not delivering what it promises. So, so let me tell you another story. This comes from 2 Corinthians 8. This story is some of the earliest Christians. They were in places like Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Those are places you've heard about. And Paul writes about them. And he says that these Christians heard that their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were really struggling. It's a crisis. And so this is what they do. Look at this. In the midst of a very severe trial, look at this. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. Two things we think can't go together. Overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up, how? In rich generosity. For I testify that they gave, look at this, as much as they were able and then even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So the first gift is to give your life to Jesus Christ. The second gift is to share your money. Okay, look with me again. Go back to the first slide of that scripture. They had joy, overflowing joy, the thing you most want. How? In poverty. Again, we don't think those things go together. Not in riches. 
in crisis in a very severe trial, their first impulse was not to go to Kroger and get toilet paper. Their first impulse was not to hoard their stuff in the middle of a crisis. What's their impulse? To give it away. And then look at this. They apparently had to beg Paul to let them give their money for these Christians. Apparently, Paul at first said, no, 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 don't do that. And he says, they pleaded with me for the privilege in sharing in the service of the Lord's people. What is wrong with those people? What is wrong with them? Why do they not see their money? Like we see our money. They see it so differently, don't they? Tim Keller has this great line. He says the early Christians were financially promiscuous. Have you ever heard that word promiscuous? It means you're kind of reckless with your body, you share it with too many. Okay. Listen to what he says about Christians and financial promiscuity. This is so good. Listen to this. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians come along and they give practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. Isn't that something? I mean, they see it totally different, completely different from the way the world does. Why is that? Okay, I started this sermon by saying that I think that the way we view our money is influenced by unique modern factors. I kind of rehearsed some of that for you. But I think those unique modern factors are just a different version of something that is ancient and old and very powerful. Paul says in Ephesians 6, I talk about this often, that when we think we're up against something that's human, like money, the lack thereof, or having too much, whatever it is, Whenever we think we're up against something human, it turns out there's often a spiritual power behind it. And I think when it comes to our money, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament would say, bingo, that's the problem. And so the reason I wanted to follow this sermon after the sermon on worship is last week we talked about the essence of worship. What is it? That the Lord wants our heart. So worship is connected to the human heart. I think you're going to see that behind me here in just a second, that worship and the human heart are connected. Okay. Jesus says the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So worship is connected to our hearts. God wants our heart. But Jesus also says this, for where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. So let me show you this. Stick with me here. Your worship is about your heart. Your money is about your heart, which means that your money is really a matter of what you're worshiping. Do you see that? And that's what he's saying here. And so Jesus makes this really clear in Matthew 6. He says this, you cannot serve or worship both God and money. Now, we don't think about money like that. We think about money as this thing in my pocket that I'm using. And what Jesus says is he puts money up here competing with God, the creator of all things, the Lord most high. And he says money is in competition with God for your worship. It's not just a thing in your pocket, it's a thing with power. 
Paul says this in 1 Timothy, he says, the love of money. Remember, Jesus says the most important thing is to love God with all your heart. Jesus says, but the love of money, on the other hand, is the root of all kinds of evil. Every evil thing in some ways is connected to that. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Meaning money didn't promise or didn't deliver what it was promising them. They went chasing after money and turns out they were sad and hurt. And then Jesus says this, the deceitfulness of wealth can choke the word, the word of God, and make it unfruitful in your life. Again, that's not money in my pocket, something that I'm using. It's money whispering into my ear or lying to me and promising to me what it can't deliver. And he says, you chase after that, and it will actually choke the things I am trying to do in your life. Because it's a power in competition with me. So if your life is about worshiping the right thing and money is leading us into idolatry, worshiping the wrong thing, the question is, how do I worship the right thing with all my heart? And a part of that is you give your money. That's what you do. You, you give that thing that has power of you so you eliminate its power over you. So look at this, Old Testament, and New Testament. Look at this, give generously. And do so how? Without a grudging heart. Your heart's going to be involved when you give. And then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, see that you excel in the grace of giving. The grace of giving, the fundamental thing we have from Jesus, grace, we connect to it when? When we give. When we give. All right, so you happen to go to a church that excels in the grace of giving. A lot of times when I go to conferences and places and people ask me about Highland, what are we good at? I say two things. We're good at generosity and we're good at grace. And Paul would say, yeah, there's a reason. Those two things go together, right? A really generous group of people are going to be a really gracious group of people. And this church excels in the grace of giving. How generous are you? Let me show you here on the screen. We got some numbers. I asked Jeff to get these numbers together. This is from 2023. This is how much you gave in 2023, look, our weekly contribution, you gave over $2.5 million last year. This little group of people, over $2.5 million. Outreach, that's our special contribution. We give that to missions and ministry partners all over the world. You gave almost half a million. That's a little misleading because two lines down, you have what we call the designated funds. And those are essentially other ministries, not supported through the outreach ministry, but other ministries that are ministering in the world, other outreach ministries. And so you actually gave close to $700,000 to ministry outside of this place. Pretty incredible. On top of that, you gave $22,000 to Overflow, which is paying off the debt on our building. And listen, I would love to be out of debt on this building. So if you just want to write a big check today, I'll take it. If you just want to knock that out, it'd free us up. That'd be great. If not, it's okay. But if you want to, I'll handle that. Okay. You excel as a church in the grace of giving. But hey, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you can't get better. Right? You do this with COVID. So I asked Jeff, I said, hey, all that money, how does that come in? Give me a visual on what it looks like week to week, the money that our Highlanders give to us, and this is what it looks like. That red line is our budget. This was in 2023. Down there, you see two-week two week increments over the whole year. That's how the money that you gave comes into Highland. Does that stress anybody else out? Look at that roller. Can you imagine riding that roller coaster? It's like some of you who look at your stocks daily. I don't do that. I don't look at these. Jeff rides that roller coaster. At the end of the year, I'm like, hey, how are we? And he says, we're great. Okay. 
I don't think about it during the year. Can you imagine riding that roller coaster? Okay, so how could we get better? Well, one of the ways that you can excel or grow in the grace of giving is you make it a priority. You make it normal. If giving's about worship, and it's important for you to worship every single week, what else should you do? You should give every single week. You shouldn't wait till it feels good, till you had a good week at work. You should do what the Bible calls give your first fruits. That goes all the way back to Exodus and Deuteronomy. The idea here is when you're a farmer back in the day, you take the first fruits of your harvest, you set those aside for God before you do anything else. And so he gets it regularly and consistently. You say, Eric, I would do that, but sometimes we forget our checkbook. I never carried cash. I'm like you, so sometimes we forget. And when I think about it, I'll do it. Okay, that's great. I've got a solution for you. If you give online, you can set it up to come automatically. I'll tell you, that's been the single greatest difference maker for Lindsay and I in the regularity of our giving and growing in our giving as it comes out of our our bank account automatically. You can set that up online. I got a funny story to tell you about that later. So one of the ways to grow in giving is to be consistent about it. I mean, Jeff is going to have a stroke over there if he has to stay on this roller coaster. So y'all please think about making it consistent. Okay. How much should I give? How much should I give? Let's be real practical. This series is all about being practical. How many of you have ever heard the word tithing? Have you heard that before? Tithing means 10%, 10%. That also comes from the Old Testament where the Israelites, the people of God were instructed to give 10% of what they had. Part of that was to take care of the priests and to provide for people in need. Okay. In this scenario, I'd be one of the priests that you're taking care of. Okay. Um, Jesus, there's not an instruction in the New Testament to give 10%. The closest thing we have is Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, hey, you guys, you're really good at tithing, which is great, but you're really bad at justice and mercy and all these other things. And he says this, let me find this here. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, tithing. You should have practiced justice and mercy while Still thinking about giving 10%. So Jesus obviously believes that 10% is a good goal. But if you look at passages like we just looked at in 2 Corinthians 8, I think the early Christians gave beyond 10%. They gave even beyond what they were able to give, we're told. And when Jesus talks about giving, it comes in Matthew 6, when he says you can't serve both God and money. Where your heart is or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what that comes right after in Matthew 6? Does anybody know? what he says about fasting. Isn't that something? He talks about part of your spiritual life is learning to go without some things. And then he talks about giving away things. I think the idea is you should give until you've had to give up something. And that would be a good marker. For some of us, that's 10%. For some of us, it's beyond that. I think 10% is a good goal, but think about it. Am I giving to the point where I've got to give up something? But should I give to the church? You know, shouldn't I give to like my favorite nonprofit? Yeah, I love nonprofits. In fact, we give a lot of the money you give to some of our nonprofit ministry partners doing great work that we think they do better than us, okay? Shouldn't I give to my family? Like what if I have family in crisis? Shouldn't I take care of my family? Absolutely, that's actually a biblical principle. You should share with your family, but I think you should invest in the church. I think you should. A couple years ago, I came across this term called gospel patronage. Have you ever heard that language before? Being a gospel patron. This guy named Simon came up with the term. This is what he said. He said, my own story began several years ago. I was about to launch a new company. 
I realized that if the business succeeded, then I stood a chance of making a lot of money. Listen to what he says. I also knew I needed a strategy in place to be able to prosper financially without failing spiritually. Isn't that good? I need a strategy in place to be able to prosper financially without failing spiritually. Money's not bad, but man, it can ruin you. So he says this, so I began to look for examples in history and I soon found that when God raised up preachers and missionaries to lead the great movements in history, he also raised up patrons to come alongside those leaders as partners in the work. And he's absolutely right in it. You know, like Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. He had somebody bankrolling him. Somebody who let him live in their palace, translate the Bible into a language that you and I can read. Why did he do it? Because somebody was paying his bills. They were investing in the church, basically. I mean, it's the true for Charles Spurgeon. It's true for Billy Graham. Behind all the great movements of the gospel and the history of our world have been people who are behind the scenes paying for investing in the church. And this goes all the way back to Jesus. You may not know this. Jesus had three wealthy women who paid all his bills. Did you know that? Ladies, listen up. Jesus had three wealthy women, sugar mamas, <laughs> paid his bills. Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. I'm probably going to get struck down for saying that. <laughs> Paul was sponsored by Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife. And probably the preacher Apollos was sponsored by them too. And we know that he was sponsored by them because Theophilus paid for Luke to write Luke and Acts. Like you have the gospel and the story of the early church because some rich guy a long time ago was like, somebody needs to write this down and paid for it. And then Paul says this about Phoebe in Romans 16. Listen to what he says about Phoebe. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, another woman, a deacon of the church at Syncre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. Why? For she's been the benefactor, which is a word used for a financial benefactor of many people, including me. What were these people doing? They were generous givers. They're not just given to their favorite cause. They're not just given to good things. They're given to eternal things. Now, they're given to the one thing that will outlast every good thing in this world, and that is the souls of men and women. Saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you give generously and broadly, but it's important that you give to the church. And you be a gospel patron. All right, let me end with a story here and a challenge. Uh, about a year ago, this family new to Highland just got so pumped about everything that was happening at Highland Church of Christ. And so they went online and they set up their gift and they set up a recurring gift. And they're excited because they're thinking and praying together about how they're being generous to their church. And every time they come to church, they feel like, like I've got a hand on what's going on here. Like the gospel being preached here, the worship taking place here, the formation of kids and young people here in Sunday school classes. Like I'm a part of it. I'm invested in that. And they feel great about it. They're just so excited to be given to the Highland Church. And then a few weeks ago, they called the church and asked for their tax statement about their charitable gifts. And Jeff was like, I'm sorry, you've given $0 to the Highland Church in 2023. And they're like, that can't be. We've been giving every week, all year long. You want to know what happened? Turns out they've been giving to the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. <laughs> for the last year. So um, now that church is doing some great things, I'm sure. But that's the wrong one. Okay, if you're going to give, give to this one. Um, 
So listen, when you go this afternoon, you're going to set up your regular gift. Just make sure it's in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay? All right. We have a, what we call a generosity pathway at Highland. Three steps. Let me challenge you. If you're not giving anything, give something, number one. Give something. If you're not giving anything, give something. If you're already giving something, let me challenge you to give regularly. Set up a recurring gift online. Give something, give regularly. And if you're already doing these, those two things, let me challenge you for the sake of your heart to consider giving more. Those three steps. Give something, give regularly, and consider giving more. And I think it's good for your heart. Okay. If you were to ask me what Christians do, I'd tell you Christians give. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let me pray over you and dismiss you. God, I'm so thankful for the people you've gathered in this room, for the people watching online. I'm thankful for their generous spirits. And God, I pray that you would make them ever more generous, that they would excel in the grace of giving for your glory, that they would invest in kingdom things, eternal things, not just good things. And they would do it knowing, God, that you would magnify those gifts for your praise and glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.